0: I have two minutes. You guys have two minutes.
1: Yeah.
2: is
1: she here? Yeah. And, oh, it's Peter. Peter You have to make sure. Yeah. minute. One minute. let yeah. Let's roll it.
2: All right, good morning, everybody. I uh, hope you're all having a great morning so far. Thank you so much for coming to church today, and... If you come take your seats, our first song for you this morning is Build Your Kingdom Here. So please stand and sing with us.
0: Ready? Okay. There we go.
3: And Father, we just pray that you would uh, oversee this service, that you would bless it, Lord God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The congregation may be seated. A few announcements as we get started here today. Uh, Ash Wednesday is coming up here on February 17th. And uh, we're going to be doing a cooperative service with the um Uh, different congregations around here. And the theme is going to be faces and places of the Holy Week. And so um, uh, different pastors from the area will be coming and sharing uh, on those different messages all the way up until Holy Week. And then a fly registration is happening now. If you have a youth that would like to go to SS Park this year, uh, we'd encourage you to uh, get signed up now. This is the cheapest that it is, and so it kind of gradually gets more expensive the closer it gets because of the adjustments that uh, they have to make. At this point, there is going to be a fly that they're um, they're in place for that. And so uh, you can go online to fly registration, and uh, go ahead and sign up for that. Um, it's $150 down right now. I got Seth signed up this week, and that secures your spot. If something happens due to COVID that they cancel the event, uh, they're going to be refunding that money back to the people as well. So, and then we need teachers. We need teachers for uh, the preschool. Um, the preschool is kind of operating at about half speed right now due to COVID, but we're anticipating that hopefully in the fall again uh, be back up to 100% and uh, of capacity. We're praying for kids to come to that, and uh, they need a couple of teachers for that, and some s- assistance as well, and uh, we'll be getting more information, too, about the director's position uh, as things move forward here. And then tech people are needed. How would you like to serve, but you don't really want to be up front here, you don't want to be on the music team, you don't want to read scriptures, but you want to just be kind of behind the scenes and and operating all these things, and blamed when everything goes wrong. So that's a good benefit of it. Uh, Humbling experience there for you. Um, So you can go ahead and talk to uh, Tim or Alex. Uh, they're up there in the thing. Maybe you just want to, you don't want to be responsible for the sound stuff, but you want to re, uh, be responsible maybe for the slides or something like that. So we'd really love for uh, some volunteers for that. And then uh, we need some people for a creative co- uh, committee. Um, is your gift creativity? Have you worked maybe in graphic, graphic design? Have you helped design logos for companies? Have you Are you good at sketching? Whatever it might be. Uh, And the reason that we're doing that is we're changing uh, a little bit of the way that people perceive the church as they come in. Um, If you'll notice right now on the website and most material we have, our theme is doing what it takes to reach and disciple people for Jesus. Okay? We talked about that in the council this last week. That's really an internal thing for us as uh, the church. We're doing what it takes. But our perception for people as they come in, we want them to know what they're going to be expected to receive from the Lord and from our church here. And so we believe that the first thing that people should see when they walk in the door is not do something, right? Uh, Because they're receiving grace from the Lord, they're receiving ministry, and so uh, it's down the way when they become more involved in the church that they'll probably begin to do some of those things that we talk about as our internal theme. And so we're developing a new logo. Uh, We're developing the website. Uh, Actually, Leslie's done a great job. Um, That should be up and going probably within the next week or two. And um, so we're doing some design work on the logo and the theme. Um, What is going to be kind of the subtitle that we're going to be having on the different materials and the website homepage that will be more attractive to people as they come. So if you'd like to do that, you can call me or Leslie, and we'd love to get you. It's not going to be super intensive. Uh, Maybe a couple of meetings of just... uh, talking about this uh, theme that we'd like to have. And then also, uh, in a couple of weeks here, we have our congregational meeting on the 31st. And so come on in for normal services, and then directly after the service, about 10 minutes after, uh, you can grab your coffee or snacks or whatever, and then we'll come back in here, and we'll have uh, talk about the budget, um, talk about, uh, I think we have some um, elections too that will be taking place at that time, and some different reports from the ministries. And so... Uh, first congregational meeting that I'll be able to attend and excited to see what the Lord is doing here at Elam. Those are our announcements now, and I'd like to invite uh, Kim Boyer to come on up. And uh, Kim, I uh, was able to read, she sent me a a material on uh, our father's house, which is an amazing thing, and uh, got to talk to her and her husband about that. So Kim, why don't you come on up and give the report for us.
0: Good morning. My name is Kim Boyer, and for those of you visiting this morning, I'm the administrator for a children's home in Bali, Indonesia, called My Father's Home. And I thought I would begin today um, clarifying some questions people had about the recent earthquake in Indonesia. Indonesia is a country composed of somewhere between 15 and 17,000 islands. So um, it spreads far along. It's located um, in what's called the Ring of Fire, where earthquakes, volcanoes, and tsunamis are always possible Um, and last week's earthquake took place where the right hand arrow is and um, um, the middle arrow, it's on an island called Sulawesi, the middle arrow shows you where Bali is, where our home is located, and then the left arrow is where Jakarta is on the island of Java where um, we now have ten of our kids residing there, so as you can see, the earthquake was pretty far from both locations where our kids live, which is always nice. Um, I always used to kind of freak out because if you read the articles, on the, the the little subcaption would read Jakarta, and I'd say, "Oh no, it hit Jakarta!" No, they were reporting from Jakarta, and it was some island way off. So anyway, that gives you kind of an idea of. Um, how vast that uh, country is and gives you an idea of, of where that happened. So since I last shared with you in December, we had seven children leave our home and move to Jakarta. Um, and here is a picture of the morning they left. So as you can see, they uh, they were... You know, really pensive about leaving. They had to leave very early in the morning to go to the airport. Um, there were a lot of mixed emotions as they said goodbye to their home of 11 years. Um, Evan was one of those pictured. He has been in our home maybe for about uh, four years, coming from the island of Sumba, but as I shared in December, Evan chose to enter the ministry and begin his studies online and he was able to move to the seminary in jakarta the same time that the other six kids um, moved to university but pictured here from the left to the right are johan evan donna and desi and the seminary has both a high school and university and johan donna and desi moved to the seminary in their sophomore year and are now seniors in high school at the seminary and will join Evan in university studies next year, all on the same campus that is pictured here. Brian and I had the opportunity to be able to go visit Johan, Donna, and Desi a few years ago and see the the seminary and everything, and it's it's a nice place. I also shared in December about the six kids being awarded full tuition scholarships, but I had inadvertently left their picture out of my last talk. I thought this morning it would be fun to share their pictures with you by showing what they looked like when they first arrived in 2009 to my father's home and what they look like now. So here is Dion when he first came and here is Dion now. Um, And then we have Jolly. And then, uh, and there she is. And Ananda, oh, he was a sad kind of kid back then. (laughs) And today, Um, and then Kristen, and then here she is. And then Hendry, and finally Novi. These six, along with Evan, flew to Jakarta almost two weeks ago. They moved in with our director Tasha's sister, Eva, and her daughter, Dilla, into their recently remodeled home, making it a little bit bigger and adding a bedroom and a bathroom. And they'll be living there for the next four years while attending university to study for their nursing degrees. And here's a recent group picture. So in front, from left to right, are Dion, Ananda, and Hendry. And then um, and then in the back row are Kristen, Jolly, Eva, who is Tasha's sisters, Novi and, D- and Dila, Eva's daughter. So that's the gang at the home now over in Jakarta. Um, and just a reminder that our nonprofit organization called My Father's Home will be financially supporting all of our kids through university, seminary, or technical training, whatever the case may be. So just because they've left our home does not mean that, uh, that, that they are no longer with us. So finally, I thought I would end this morning by sharing a fun Christmas video with you. Before you watch this short video, which is less than two minutes, I think it's a minute and 24 seconds, so it goes by quickly. So I thought it would be helpful for, to share with you um, who you will be seeing. Okay? It begins with our two youngest, Gabby and Alex, who you saw up there a little bit ago, and they are sophomores in high school. Then you'll see the juniors in high school, then our seniors. And I didn't want to label them because it goes by so fast you wouldn't be able to, <laughs> to see them. You'll then see our three seminary kids, followed by Evan, who recently joined them, then Andika, our boy who had the brain tumor, then two more of our high school graduates, Andy and Melly, who is our chef. And then you'll see the six kids we talked about this morning, followed by the five who received full rides to a Christian university, and they're waiting to go to Jakarta when it opens. So after our kids comes Tasha's son, Ezekiel, who's now a pilot living in Melbourne, Australia, then Tasha's nephew, Hendry, who is taking care of our kids while Tasha is in Australia, Next, you'll see Tasha's daughter, Grace, who is now a medical doctor on the island of Java. You'll see she's really young, but a uh, really smart girl. But anyway, um, finally, you will see Tasha and her husband, Gordon. And remember, Gordon is um, fighting cancer and needs our prayers. He's why Tasha is on Australia now. So thank you for letting me share this morning, and I hope you enjoy the video. Whoops, needs sound. Can we start it again with the sound? Her husband, Gordon. And remember, Gordon is um, fighting cancer and needs our prayers. He's white
1: tie. Australia. Hope you're all doing well, and all the best for the new year to come. Take care. Merry Christmas! Yay! Hi everyone. Wishing you all a merry Christmas and a very happy new year from Semarang, Central Java, Indonesia. I am praying for you all, and
3: praying that you have a very blessed year ahead. God bless you. Dan biarlah anugerah Dan damai may the sechestra
2: The gift of joy, the gift of love
1: and the gift of happiness. May all those be yours at Christmas time from Sydney, Australia, Merry,
0: Merry Christmas, Christmas and Happy, Happy New Year.
3: so much Kim and just an amazing thing that y'all are doing there and uh, I've heard that over half the congregation sponsors uh, some of these kids and so uh, I encourage you if you want to find out more information about that and how to sponsor these uh, children and the Christian life that they're living now and uh, the discipleship they're receiving uh, please talk to Kim about that as well. Let's stand together as we continue our time of worship. At this time, we are going to uh, learn a new thing that uh, is called the Kyrie. Let me just make sure I'm on the right deal here. Okay, so the Kyrie is a um, prayer that's sung, and your part is pretty easy. Uh, I'm gonna sing the first portion, and you're gonna be singing, uh, Lord have mercy. And so the words will be up on the, the screen for us here, I believe. Didn't get those? Okay, we are going to learn the Kyrie next week, and uh, <laughs> that will be a very <laughs> wonderful thing. Yeah, but, Is it the same one? Not quite. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll do it another time. Let's, uh, let's do the Kyrie another time when we're a little bit more prepared for that. That was a miscommunication on my part, and so let's go ahead and move on to the next portion of our service with a continued time of worship. So, ladies.
2: All right, our next song for you this morning is Only King Forever.
1: nations rise and fall kingdoms now strong now shaken we trust forever in your name the name of jesus
2: song is sovereign so especially during you know covid times god is our calm in the storm so we thought this would be a good song for this morning
1: Mm so
3: Ladies, congregation may be seated. And today we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 1. And so please turn your attention to the screen as we look at this scripture. And the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's continue to pray together. Check, check. Father God, we come before you today and we thank you, Lord, for this, your word. We thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand how creation was made and to get to know you better through your creation. And Father, I pray that you would be with me, fill me with your spirit as I proclaim this message. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we asked the question, who is God? Who is God? And as we continue in our series um, regarding the foundational triads, and specifically these three weeks looking at God the Father, we are going to ask the question, what does God do? But for the sake of brevity, we're only going to focus on one limited aspect of what God does. Uh, We're going to focus on his creative aspect, specifically his creation of the world and everything in it. Now I realize today at the end of my message you may end up having more questions than answers. Uh, this is typical in regard to Bible study. Uh, the more we study, the more questions we have. And so in celebration of our curiosity as humans, I submit to you the top 10 questions that kids ask. Why, are birds elect- or why aren't birds electrocuted on wires? Why is the moon sometimes out in the day? Why is water wet? What is time? My favorite, where do babies come from? That's hard to explain. Uh, Why is it bad to pee in the pool? Uh, Why did the dinosaurs go extinct? What happens to people when they die? Where is the end of the rainbow? And then one child gave an answer to a tough question. What did God do to Adam and Eve? He said, uh, he sent them to hell and then transferred them to Los Angeles. (laughs) So. So the first thing we notice as we look at this particular text in the Bible, the beginning of the Bible here, uh, we see that there is a beginning. We notice the first three words there, in the beginning. And we all know about beginnings because in our finite world, everything has a beginning. We plant a tree in the backyard and we recognize that it has to come from a seed which had a beginning. And then we need to work backward. Where did that seed come from? Well, it came from previous trees or plants. But the most basic premise of our existence is that everything comes from somewhere. And that's why it's so shocking when we read that first verse in Genesis that we see the fourth word there. In the beginning, God. Because here we find a being that was before the beginning. He predates the start. Now this doesn't necessarily confuse us when we look at the worldly context of it because, for instance, I was there at the beginning of my children's life. And in fact, in fact I um, help bring them into existence through procreation. What makes things more complicated is when we look at God who, unlike me, has no beginning. Because even though the, I was there at the beginning of their lives, I had a beginning myself. And so we see this also in other passages like Psalm 90 verse two where it states, before the mountains were brought forth, for ever before you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so from our human perspective, the mountains are probably the most enduring picture of something that is old or ancient. But we recognize also in the midst of the mountains, they can change as well. Um, there could be m- immense time and uh, geological pressure that would wear away the Cascade Mountains. In a 2013 study by Professor David Eggholm of the Aris University in Denmark, he and his colleagues found that erosion would reduce a 14,000 foot mountain like Mount Rainier down to half in about 200 million years. And so, we see that things change. When I was in the military, uh, I spent two years in Germany. And one of the things that impressed me when I was in Germany was the architecture there. Because I would be standing in a building and I would realize, you know, this thing is 500 years old. Being from a small town in Stanley, Wisconsin, about the oldest relic we had sitting around was the John Deere tractor out in the back 40. (laughs) So we see this being here who's ancient. If you met somebody that was 500 years old, you would be pretty impressed. And here's one who is the Ancient of Days, as Daniel 7 calls him. And frankly, this is why I find science to be terribly unreliable as a source for information in regard to the creation of the world. First of all, none of the scientists were there when it happened. (laughs) They're limited to looking for answers in archaeological digs, which are proven to be very difficult to interpret. And this is why schools continue to change their textbooks. There's new theories that come out and subsequent predictions based on those theories. And yet, so many teachers and scientists will confidently state these hypotheses as facts. Now, I'm not saying that science doesn't have its place. I'm very grateful for science. I love to study it. But listen for a moment at the steps in the scientific method. Number one, make an observation, two, ask a question, three, form a hypothesis or a testable explanation, four, make a prediction based on the hypothesis, five, test the prediction. In regard to creation, there is no way to do a scientific experiment to test the hypothesis. At best, scientists are guessing as to what occurred at the beginning of the world. And so their guess falls in the category of faith, not fact. They have faith that this happened because faith is believing in something that you can't see. And if you can't test it, you can't see it. And so you have to have faith in it. And so I ask you this morning, is it more plausible to believe that an ancient powerful being that has infinite power created the universe or that it just popped into existence all by itself. Even the most hardened atheistic scientists will admit that they run into an impenetrable wall when it comes to the question of causation. What caused the world to come into existence? In 1802, clergyman William Paley presented a creation theory called the watchmaker analogy. He said, if you're walking down a path someday and you look down on the ground and you see an item there, you bend over and you realize it's a pocket watch, would you think to yourself, hmm, I wonder what process happened that this thing just evolved into this thing and just popped up out of the path in front of me? Or would you say somebody lost their pocket watch, recognizing that somebody made that watch? Now think about traveling through the universe and you're just floating along and you come across this planet here, which by the way is trillions of times more complex than a simple pocket watch. Why would you assume that it just popped up out of nowhere? Wouldn't you assume that there was a world maker and this world maker has to predate the world that he made and has to be separate from it and not affected by it. The next thing we see in our text here is that God speaks things into existence. God is unlike us that we cannot create anything without materials at hand which, with, with which to build. It's kind of like the old joke that's been told. One day a group of scientists were uh, getting together and deciding that man had come a long way, they no longer needed God. And they picked one of the scientists to go and tell God that they were done with him. So the scientists walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point where we can clone people and do many miraculous things. So why don't you just leave us alone? God listened patiently to the man and after the scientist was done talking, God said, okay, let's do this. Let's have a man-making contest. To which the scientist pre- uh, said, okay, great, <laughs> but God added, now we're going to do it just like I did back in the days of Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem, and bent down to grab himself some dirt on the ground there. God just looked at him and said, no, 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 get your own dirt. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing we recognize is that God created everything out of nothing. Nothing. Notice what takes place in those verses that describe creation on these subsequent days. Those sentences start with the phrase, And God said. He literally speaks things into existence. Now, many will argue and say, Well, God probably used the evolutionary process in order to bring about creation as we see it today. There are a couple of clues that indicate to me that this cannot be so. First, if you notice in verse 11, 12, 21, and 25, when the vegetation, the sea creatures, the birds, the land uh, creatures are described here, it states that each was made according to its kind. And so there's no evolutionary process of going from one kind of species into another kind of species. To this day, evolutionary scientists cannot produce a single shred of evidence that shows a change in kind. That's because God made each according to its own kind from the very beginning. Now, just a brief word about evolution. I do believe in something called microevolution. This is the ability that God has given to all his creation to mutate in response to extraordinary climate or other stimuli. This is why people that live near the equator for centuries get darker. This is why the common household sparrow was introduced to uh, North America in 1852, and then it changed, the ones in the north got heavier. Their bodies got bigger. That's because they adapted to the colder climate up there and they were able to survive longer. And so we see this microevolution, but just because we see this natural adaptation in nature, it does not mean that macroevolution should be taken as fact. One of the biggest arguments from evolutionists regarding the biblical account of creation is their perception of a universe that is billions of years old rather than the thousands of years that scripture describes. But let me pose this question to you. Upon seeing Adam in the Garden of Eden a minute after he was created, how old would, he, per, would you perceive him to be at that point? Probably closer to 15,768,000 minutes, which is what it would take to get someone to the age of 30. So you'd see him and you'd think, oh, a 30-year-old guy here, rather than somebody that was one minute old. We can apply this age perception phenomena to the earth. Just because it appears to be older than seven, 8,000 years does not mean that it is. Because God created it with a word out of nothing into a fully formed ecosystem, according to the Bible. At home, we have a table that I built out of old pews from a Catholic church. And if you come over, don't worry about any residue from the worshippers' bottoms because I sanitized it when I was building it. But by the time we moved to Salinas, it had gotten kind of beat up through the years. The kids had been playing on it, drawing on it, different things like that. And so um, a guy that was a cabinet builder in Salinas said, hey, I'll refinish it for you, Scott. And so I gave it to him, and he started sanding it down and stuff. But he used a process called distressing And distressing is where you take the wood and you take chains and you beat the wood with it and you take iron implements and you jab it and scrape it and then you finish it in such a way that it ends up looking like it's an antique. So this table, which was only probably a decade old, looked like it was about two, three hundred years old. Now that's the level of creativity found in a 50-year-old. How do you think God, who is infinite and ancient, Without beginning, ultimately wise, don't you think that he can create something to look older than it is? And so I wonder if maybe God did this just in order to confound the so-called wise of this world. The next thing we see here is that God loves variety. I was surprised to find out that even in our modern day of cataloging, we have only identified possibly 2% of all species in the earth. By the way, this gives a whole new light to the job of naming the animals. Now we know what Adam was doing the first 15 years that he was in existence. And I can just hear him running out of names. Okay, you'll be Protozoa 115. Next, you're Protozoa 116. Thankfully, Adam didn't have to name the stars. But listen to Psalm 147, verse 4. He, God, determines the number of stars. He gives them all their names. Recent studies say that there may be as many as three sextillion stars in the universe. That's a three followed by 23 zeros. Now that number is hard to get our minds around, so let me put it this way. If you started walking and you counted every single step, to get to three sextillion, you would have to walk to the sun and back over 300 billion times. Now, that's just the stars. We're not even talking about the planets, the moons, the black holes, asteroids, comets. And you might wonder well, why did he make so many stars and so many things out in the universe there? I believe it was so that he receives all the glory. When I look at my own accomplishments in comparison to that and I think I'm gonna brag about something I've done, I shut my mouth in humility, recognizing that everything comes from him anyways. He made all of this and he sustains it by his powerful word for his own purposes. And that brings us to the next point that God creates for his own glory. Psalm 19:1 states, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In fact, all creation declares God's glory. Looking at Thayer's Greek lexicon, he defines the word that we translate into glory this way, good opinion concerning someone and resulting from that praise and honor. And so clearly glory is something that is given by a certain party to another party because of something that we like or appreciate about them. Now this is a pretty broad term and can be applied in many different ways. For instance, someone may receive glory from another person for some good work they have done or a particular kind of accomplishment. For instance, we may give glory to Peter and Sheila for an excellent print job they did for us. Or we may give glory to Daryl for, you know, placing in the top ten in his age group at some triathlon, which is getting easier every year, I think. So, and. So you give glory to people, you praise, you honor them. When God receives the glory, it means that we see him more clearly for who he is. And in creation, we see that. We see the glory of his care. We recognize that he cares for his creation. This realization that he keeps the entire cosmos in a perfect harmony, a perfect balance, But then we also see that he knows when a sparrow falls. That's amazing. And then we recognize that he actually cares about human beings. In fact, human beings are the crown of his creation. Those two fragile beings in the garden named Adam and Eve, they were given dominion and authority over all that God had created. And all of this should cause us to give God the glory But do you know the tragic thing? There's only one creature in all of God's creation that refuses to give him the glory. Mankind. All the rest of creation is busy glorifying God. That's their purpose. And that was originally our purpose way back in the Garden of Eden. But rebellion took place. And we want to steal the glory for ourselves. We see the lies that have been propagated about uh, from atheists regarding the origin of life. And we see that there's this attempt to steal the glory away from God. His glory of creation. To say, no, he didn't do that. Just came from nowhere. It's all an enormous mistake. And so these people are working hard while at the same time trying to convince you that they're defending the truth. Romans 8, uh, 1, 18 through 20 shows us the true state of these kinds of people. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In conclusion this morning here, the first section of the Nicene Creed states, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. In 325 AD, the church fathers saw the necessity of belief in God as creator, in order to have an orthodox faith. Orthodox just means correct, to have a correct faith. But you might say, well, Pastor Scott, what does it matter what I believe in regarding how the world was created? The reason it matters is that if you cannot believe that God spoke into existence the world and everything around us, how will you believe that he can speak life to your dead soul? How will you believe that he raised Jesus from the dead and in so doing can also raise your dead body. The point is that if we get it wrong from the beginning, everything else after that is down the tubes. Father God, I pray that you would help us with this tough doctrine. I pray that you would help us to understand it, to take your word for what it says. And Lord God, that you would help us in regard to proclaiming these things to understand the complexities of, of the world around us and the things that we cannot understand or don't know, that we can rest on your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we respond to this amazing truth. All
2: right, please stand and sing with us as we sing our Next song, God of Wonders.
3: forever and ever. Amen. The congregation may be seated. If you please raise your hand if you didn't receive a communion cup here today. The ushers will grab one for you. When we were discussing with council um, kind of some of the things that they would, that they would like to see uh, and that I would like to see perhaps implemented, we thought this is the time to do it when the pastor's new and when he's here uh, we can make some changes together. One of the things that I asked the council to approve of and the deacons um, was communion every Sunday. And so we're going to begin to incorporate communion every Sunday into our services. Um, The reason for that is because communion we see is not just a remembrance of the Lord's death, it's not just a thing that we do together to kind of solidify our uh, fellowship, it's called a sacrament. A sacrament is a physical thing that has a spiritual power attached to it. A spiritual thing happens during a sacrament. And so what we believe in regard to the sacrament of the table is that the presence of the Lord comes and he dwells in the midst of these elements here. Just a brief explanation about that. That might sound a little Catholic, but Catholic uh, belief is a thing called transubstantiation. What they believe is that the bread and the wine actually turn into actual flesh and blood, like at a genetic level. That's now the blood and body of Christ. Um, On the other side, the Reformed Church believes that it's only a symbol, okay? There's nothing special in regard to it except that Jesus uh, proclaimed that we should do it. What we believe is we believe in something called consubstantiation. The word con, as you know if you speak Spanish, is uh, with. And so we believe that the body and blood of Christ are within and under the elements. The presence of Christ is here. I like how Luther described it. He said that if you threw a rock into the fire, um, the rock doesn't change into something different. But now a result of the fire is now within and under the rock. It's hot, right? It's still a rock, but it has this presence of the heat in it, and the fire is residual in it. And so the reason that we come to the communion table is because we believe that Jesus is here. We believe that he has power to heal, power to forgive. And so as we come, um, there's a cleansing, and I talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago in regard to Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Uh, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, uh, Lord, I, you will never wash me. But Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, Peter, you will have no part of me. And so then Peter said, well, wash my entire body then. And Jesus some, said something very profound there. He said, the person who is clean needs only to wash their feet. You are clean, meaning that you have been forgiven. God has forgiven you of your sins. You've been cleansed in righteousness. But you also walk around out in the world, don't you? (laughs) And when we walk out in the world, even if we've taken a bath, our feet tend to get dirty. Those are the things, the sins and different things that we pick up as we live our normal life. And so Jesus connected the communion supper with the washing of our feet. We come and we are washed anew each week as we come to the table want you begin to open up your little cups there, please. We'll be teaching on this, actually, I'll be doing a whole series on communion coming up during our series on foundational truths, so. But I want you to know just some of the basic premise of why we're switching to every week. Because I don't want people to miss out on the opportunity to partake of this amazing gift that God has given us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup. And when he had eaten and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. And now the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his holy and precious blood strengthen and preserve you in the true faith unto life everlasting. Would you please stand to receive the benediction? Please open your hands and hearts to receive God's good word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's join together in our closing song.
2: Our final song for you this morning is Shine, Jesus, Shine.
3: some prayers for Bjorn, he was supposed to actually be here drumming today, but he's nailed two of his fingers together <laughs> with a nail gun. So uh, let's pray for Bjorn. <laughs> father God, we just pray for him today and uh, pray for quick healing, no infection would set in there, Lord God, and that uh, you would just speak to him comfort through this time of, of healing, Lord God. We also lift up to uh, Leslie's father as uh, he's struggling with an infection and um, some different health issues this week. Um, Father God, there are so many different prayers and things that are going on in our lives. We pray that you would um, call them to mind as we pray as a congregation for our brothers and sisters, Lord. And I thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Depart in peace. You're dismissed.